0: It's Thursday, January 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump's civil proceedings concluded in New York City today. Yesterday, here's what CNN reported. Now, though, we have learned that Judge Arthur Engeron indicated he does not expect Trump to speak in court because Trump failed to comply with the judge's preconditioned terms. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, what were those? Preconditioned terms. Well, the judge made it really clear. This was reported under the headline, Trump can't speak during closing arguments in NY civil fraud trial, judge says. So today, when Trump spoke during closing arguments, he insulted New York State's attorney general and insulted the judge who issued a stern warning. 50 or so Trump fans broke into the courtroom, rushing past deputies and secret service. They cheered for Trump and he gave them a wave. No problem. No problem at all. Later, the former president appeared on the steps outside the courthouse and declared victory in this case, which he has already lost. We won this case already in the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals voted in favor of us. But this judge has been very, very slow to accept that opinion because that's not the opinion that he wants. But we won in the Court of Appeals. That's the boss of this judge who has to know that. And it was a conclusive victory. Statute of limitations and other things And that case has already been won. So uh, that's the story. And I thought we'd come down to 40 Wall Street, which is a great building. And you'd get a chance to see one of the nicest buildings in New York and a convenient place. And I don't have to pay any rent because we have it. And it's been a very successful building. What was successful was Trump's PR strategy to dominate the discourse and not allow the actual judicial ruling to do anything but buttress his political fortunes. As far as his literal fortunes, the consequence of the verdict will be hard for him to ignore. Legal experts say hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Trump assets could go into receivership soon. Of course, legal experts also said he wouldn't speak today and he did. And some, though not all legal experts, portrayed his overall judicial entanglement as damaging to his run for the presidency, so far that very much seems not to be the case. And while the Trump Organization might take a hit, the Trump political machine either escaped unscathed or, quite plausibly, got a very successful boost. On the show today, I shall spiel about last night's debate and the Republican candidate who bowed out ever so gracefully before shit-talking everyone on an open mic. But first, Donald McNeil Jr. has been covering pandemics since the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. His new book, The Wisdom of Plagues, collects all the lessons he's learned covering diseases across the world. Donald McNeil Jr., up next. Donald McNeil, officially to you and me, Donald G. McNeil Jr., is a journalist who was key to winning the Pulitzer Prize in 2021 for his former newspaper, The New York Times. He has covered outbreaks and pandemics from AIDS to Ebola to influenza, MERS, SARS, Zika, tuberculosis, am I going to name them all? And of course, COVID-19. His new book collects some, though not all, of his 60 countries he's visited and decades of reporting. It is called The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Donald, welcome back to The Gist.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: When you were in the middle, when we were all in the middle of understanding COVID and dealing with COVID, but when you were in the middle of it, Was it just natural that you would connect it to all the other pandemics, or did you have to stop at times and say, ah, this is like Zika, this is like Ebola, this reminds me of perhaps some uh, outbreaks that I've only read about, like the outbreaks during the reign of Emperor Justin?
1: Most of the time, it just sort of leapt out at me. I I mean, I remember Zika as the outbreak where just the rumors took over from everything, that the people... Refused to believe that the cause of microcephaly was the virus. They kept saying it was. You know, different different people would say it's a roundup sprayed in towns. It's it's a transgenic mosquitoes. It's this so or that. In the case, of- and,
0: people, and these were not wild, cons- wild eyed. Uh- ignorant people these were educated people who would often maybe even new york times employed people who would yes, share their ideas yes there was a retired times
1: person who sent me you know what she considered evidence that it was uh, caused by roundup uh, and there were some there were some doctors everybody has their own agenda and and pandemics have a way of bringing out people's angry agendas in this case everybody believed the virus was the cause of the disease but then everybody began to believe that it would either all go away by itself or that it would uh or that the you know it wasn't dangerous it was no worse than the flu or that it was you know the vaccines didn't work or the drugs didn't work or ivermectin did work you know we all remember the rumors that sprang up
0: yeah you have a whole chapter called the cancer of rumors and i guess cancer has its own rumors but Other than just it's better to have knowledge than ignorance, how have rumors played out to really uh, doom or damn humanity in this in this latest pandemic and in pandemics before?
1: Well, for some reason, you know, one third of all the seniors in this country, only one third of all the seniors in this country have gotten their latest covid booster. Um, and I feel like, geez, I must know most of them because uh, everybody I know has had, had one, but- uh,
0: Well, the, yeah, but then again, the demographics, New York educated, white, those would probably be much more correlated to getting all their boosters.
1: Yeah, but yeah. the problem is even after all this time, people are still afraid of the, the vaccine. And that, that you know, not a lot of people are dying of the virus despite what's being said on, on the media right now. But, uh, you know, a certain number of people are. And there is no need to die of this virus because there is an excellent, very safe vaccine, multiple excellent, very safe vaccines. Against it, and yet some significant chunk of the country just kind of refuses to believe that, and that prolonged the pandemic too uh, during that time. You know, and th- there was a time when ninety nine percent of the deaths were among people who had not been vaccinated. That was early on when there was a sharp distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated.
0: And and of the people dying now, do you know offhand approximately what percent aren't vaccinated or fully vaccinated?
1: I, I don't know, and besides, it doesn't. That's not really a meaningful statistic anymore because everybody's either been vaccinated or has been exposed to the virus, which is in itself a form of vaccine. Everybody's got some very, very, very few people, uh, you know, have had no exposure to the virus. And that's, I think it's often people who think they've never had it, but probably had a very mild case, thought they had a cold um, and they probably had. So, so it's, it doesn't mean very much. I mean, the people who are dying are mostly people who have serious problems. So it's not, it's
0: not a, it's, it is not true that it is currently a pandemic of the unvaccinated. No, it's not even a meaningful distinction. Yeah, Everyone's because had the, um, some experience. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Um, you know, this is what happens every year in winter. Is that if you look at the curve of deaths in this country, all over the country, in New York City, everywhere, deaths go down in summer and up in winter. You know, and it's caused flu, RSV, a dozen other viruses. They tend to sort of wipe out the uh, population of the nursing homes and make room for a new freshman class in the spring. Unfortunately, that's kind of the nature of of getting old and and being bedridden in this country.
0: So to put it in perspective, I think last year there were sixty some odd thousand people who were uh, killed from COVID nineteen.
1: Well, right now about sixteen hundred people a week are dying of COVID nineteen, and it already peaked a couple of weeks ago. To put that in perspective, it was twenty six thousand a week in the first winter of the epidemic and 16,000 a week in the second winter of the epidemic. So we're down to a 20th and a 10th of the, the levels that we were looking at in, in, in previous winters.
0: So I still see people uh, on social media claiming, you know, this is as if one jumbo jet was going down a day, 200 people a day. Don't you get it? You need to mask. What's wrong with thinking about it that way?
1: It's, uh, it, it, you know, people die. This is not the number one cause of death. It never it's, got higher. I don't higher. think
0: it's in, in the top 10 anymore.
1: Uh, right? No, uh, I don't know exactly. But you I mean, I even in the first year when it was a major cause of death, it never got higher than number three. Right. Cancer and heart disease still kill more Americans every year than COVID ever 100, did. 100,000
0: die of diabetes, which is a treatable disease. Yes.
1: Multiple jumbo jets full of cancer victims die every year every, every month you i don't i don't see that as a useful um use, useful metric
0: i also see uh, people saying that very urgent about the need for public masking what's you, in the book you talk about your own policy on masking and walking outside and giving enough people a buffer and people say "Donald you should be setting an example" and you would say "i am setting an example this is what the science dictates" but what's your what's your policy either personal or do you think the public health policy should be on masking right now
1: I haven't worn a mask since February of 2022 because by that time I'd been vaccinated 3 times and I'd had COVID once and I and it was mild and I just figured okay if I get it again um you know it's probably going to be mild again and you can't go through life not being exposed to any disease just like you know children ought to be allowed to c- crawl in the dirt because you constantly Reinforce your immune system by constantly being exposed to things. So, I, I, and also, I just don't believe in living in terror. Uh, You know, I mean, I drive on the highways, I, you know, ride the New York City subways, I do other things that, you know, to some people think is taking your life in your hands, and, you know, you never do. So, so I don't, um, I mean, my feeling about masks is is that masks work if everyone actually wears them. They don't pull them down to eat or to smoke or to you know talk or things like. If everybody actually, they only work in the very beginning of a pandemic when everybody is very scared, and a mask is better at keeping the virus in than it is at keeping it out. That is. The virus is if, if somebody has the virus and you don't know who on the subway car with you is a super spreader, if that person is wearing a mask, they are much less likely to spew particles. And that is more protective than the others. But you can't get a person who's sick to wear a mask unless everyone is wearing a mask because a mask becomes like a leper's bell. It becomes a signal that that person is a sick person. So in the beginning of an epidemic, if everybody wears masks, you can substantially cut transmission and you could substantially cut hospital admissions, but you can't keep it up because people get tired and then only some people wearing masks. And ultimately that the whole system sort of breaks down. I mean, things break down during pandemics. We saw in China, Xi Jinping had three years of a zero covid policy. But ultimately, the combination of the Omicron variant being so transmissible and the fact that the Chinese people were just sick and tired of being imprisoned caused the whole thing to explode. And then they had a giant surge of deaths. Um you know, we, don't, we never got accurate figures out of China, but even the best estimates suggest that their death rate, even with that giant surge, was a tiny fraction of ours. But, you know, you can't hold back the dike, the dam forever. It, just, it, it will burst.
0: And that does cut against a bit of conventional wisdom, which was that perhaps autocratic regimes would be more adept at combating COVID. And people would cite, say, Singapore, quasi-autocracy, China- But then, and your book points out, there are so many contrary examples to that. I would say that uh, Russia is certainly very close to an autocratic regime. They did terribly. And they're very free and open societies, not open in terms of letting uh, all their borders be porous, but New Zealand did great with COVID. So there wasn't one type of government that did better than others. Although you also point out, if you want to compare how the United States did to say some peer states like Canada and Germany, we did so much work.
1: I have examples in the book where autocracies have done a really good job at fighting a disease. And Cuba and AIDS is one example. And Vietnam and tuberculosis is another example. Because many of these diseases are diseases that respond to that approach. In in, in with, with TB, you have to make sure people take all their pills every single day. And in Vietnam, anybody who had TB, once they were out of the hospital if they had to be hospitalized for multi-drug-resistant TB, they had to show up at a health clinic, which was next to the police station, every single day to take their pills in front of a nurse. That's very inconvenient. It would be very hard to do in this country, but it's the only way you beat the disease. And if you don't take your pills every day, you end up with XDR TB, you know, ex- extensively drug-resistant TB, and you're almost inevitably dead. So, I mean, that kind of approach uh, is is tough. But not every autocracy is good. Uh, w- the only trend I could really find was that if, s- if people tended to trust their government
0: on health issues. Right, so that's Cuba's interesting because there's a lot of mistrust of the government, but when it comes to health, there is trust, and it's probably deserved. They have a pretty robust health system in Cuba. And
1: in this country... We have democracy. You can say anything you want. There's freedom of speech, but there's very little trust in the healthcare system. Partly particularly because you
0: can say anything you want. <laughs> the insurance
1: industry, right, you know, right. and 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 the drug industry charges us the highest prices in the world, and makes it very difficult, you know, for Congress to lower those prices, you know, because they're they're in the pockets of the uh, of the lobbies. So. Yeah, I, I think this is a trend that I, that I could see. And, and, you know, when countries trust our governments, but also when they trust our governments on health-related issues, you get better outcomes.
0: Right. So Canada, we all know about the truckers. They have essentially freedom of speech. In Germany, there are occasionally protests about from everything from COVID to 4G in the phone systems. But if we had, if the United States had essentially Canadian or German levels of trust I think you have an estimate, a general estimate of how many fewer deaths we have.
1: I, have. I calculated at five hundred and forty thousand fewer deaths we would have had, but it's it's not. No, the The big difference here was that the mistrust, the the rumors, the the rejectionism, the denialism started at the very top. It did not in Canada. In Canada, you had Trudeau, and in Germany, you had um, Angela Merkel, uh, and they explained to people why they needed to. Lockdown and socially isolate from each other. They they reimpose lockdowns right. when those are necessary, right. and when the vaccines and regional came. Regional
0: health ministers, unlike some state governors, are very responsible in Canada, for instance. Yeah,
1: yeah, but here, you know, the the lies came from the very top, and that has consequences. And they were spread by people who had millions and millions of, of viewers on Fox News. Yeah. So you you once that happens, you know, never mind whether you trust the government or not. Once the government decides to. To 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 produce a false narrative, you can fool an awful lot of people into into doing something that ultimately has fatal consequences for them.
0: Were public health officials surprised by the lack of trust that the public had in them and in science? I
1: think you'd have to ask each public health official how they felt about that. I yeah. mean,
0: I uh, but I've talked Robert to some, Redfield and it you know,
1: was silent never contradicted the president at all you know the head of the cdc and you know people from the white house were allowed to rewrite papers in the morbidity and mortality weekly and stuff and that that is incredibly shocking to anybody who was a cdc lifer that they would have allowed it's like the like the fbi allowing the president to sort of stick his fingers in the fbi and decide who to indict and who not but and yet we see that kind of thing happening um, You know, Tony Fauci was the one who spoke out and, you know, became hated, not because he was wrong about masks, or anything, but because he contradicted the president. He contradicted a very popular president and turned out to be right. And, you know, nobody who follows Donald Trump nor Donald Trump wants to admit that, you know, Tony Fauci was right and Trump was wrong. So
0: on which parts was he right? the big ones uh, oh, but you know articulate. it wasn't all
1: going to go away by summer right. it you know we weren't all going to be back in football stadiums you know for the start of the 2020 football season it wasn't it wasn't just going to wash through the population like this harmless you know, thing no, and 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 yes, the vaccines work. Then yes, you should get your boosters and stuff. I mean, the president didn't even admit that he and his wife got vaccinated like the day, the first day they could. He kept that secret for months. You know, he happened to blurt it out at the uh, C- C- what do you call it, cap the conservative convention that takes place in spring. But he he just didn't want to admit that he that he'd been vaccinated. And then later, when he endorsed boosters, his own fans booed him. Uh, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, thought she was right from the very beginning. The, the stuff about Mac- masks you know you a good scientist a good a good journalist anybody else when when the facts change you change your mind and that's what happened on on a lot of things and you know including masks
0: i've talked to public health officials and heard from them and more than one expressed to me that they know that part of their communication efforts is overcoming some degree of ignorance or some degree of misinformation. And when this happens with an Ebola outbreak in Congo, let's say, they say, okay, this is going to be the lay of the land. In the United States, the ones I talked to were surprised to the extent to which rumors, denialism, and just officialdom cutting against what was pretty incontrovertible evidence. They were surprised at that and I think they I think that did hurt their efforts to communicate. I mean it's always easy to nitpick and say that they overgeneralized here or got facts wrong there or came across and this I think this is a legitimate um, criticism. They did sometimes come across as supercilious, but they were also surprised that those would be the conditions in the United States. It
1: was, to, from my point of view, if somebody has been looking at this for a long time, it was shocking how much worse it was this time than it had been in previous epidemics. If you look at, you know, the administration, the Reagan administration, in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and you look at the Obama administration, because people forget that we had a pandemic during the Obama administration. It was actually the Obama administration's first crisis. Shortly after he took office, H1N1 flu broke out in Mexico, the so-called swine flu. In the beginning, it sounded really serious, and there was a lot of scare. It sounded like the death rate in Mexico was quite high, and um, masks didn't really become an issue at that time, but social distancing did and not shaking hands and doing things did, and we started an all-out effort to produce a vaccine. We actually succeeded in a really good all-out effort to produce a vaccine, but by by the end of summer, there was a, there was a surge of cases. There were a lot of people sick in, in, in the spring. A lot of people were sick in New York city. People panicked when one assistant high school principal, Mitchell Weiner, died um, and, and they worried about, it. but then as, as it, didn't really, nothing became door of the summer, and then it became clear that probably the early figures from Mexico City were wrong, and the lethality of the virus was much lower than the original estimates had been, then people didn't wanna take the the shots, and essentially the problem went away. So the Obama Obama administration got lucky, but they did the right thing. They prepared. Had it been worse, we would have had a vaccine by October for this new virus that we'd never had before. That was important. The Reagan administration during AIDS was in total denial Rob Reagan didn't even say the word AIDS for four years until his friend Rock Hudson got sick and died of it, and then he began to talk about it. And that's the first time we actually passed um, a bill, you know, funding research for AIDS. For a long time, you know, people had the attitude that this is God's revenge, revenge on homosexuals, and and. Uh, uh, and and heroin users, and then you had to say, well, why is God angry at uh, hemophiliacs and Haitians too? Because they were in the in the four H's of the of the early victims of the epidemic, and the answer was it had nothing to do with God. It had to do with people and their own prejudices against people who had AIDS, and you know we could have. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how we handled AIDS and how it didn't work, and I think that. You know, 700,000 people in this country have died of AIDS, and perhaps we could have lessened that number by being tougher about isolating those with the disease in the beginning. But of course, You know, that would have been an accusation of fascism. That is what the Cubans did. Yes, The Cubans were not actually jailing gay men. They were mostly jailing soldiers because that's who came back with AIDS from having worked in Africa on the very many military missions they had in Africa. But they substantially slowed down that epidemic with a policy of imprisonment that never would have flown in this country. But then I say, ask yourself, you know, if you could have prevented the deaths of 700,000 people of whom probably 600,000 were gay men, how far would you go to prevent the deaths of 600,000 gay men? What does it say about gay rights if that many men died, if they didn't need to die in order to protect the rights of the first group of men who Mm -hmm. died? And, you know, this makes me, you know, hated, and I accept that. And I basically, I want to put this out for people to debate. You know, I I got it. I got attacked. You know, by somebody. Somebody I respect a lot said, "How would you feel if if Jeff Schmaltz of the New York Times had been frog marched out of the New York Times and put in prison?" And my response. This is your but, colleague. This is my colleague. Yeah, and and I yeah. and he died of AIDS in, in 1993. And my response was, Jeff and I were actually friends. We were we were I was a, a copy. We were copy boys at the same time, and then I became a reporter, and he became an editor. Um, he was in the closet at the time because everybody at the time was in the closet at the time. And Jeff died in 1993, which meant that he was probably infected not at the very beginning of the pandemic, but in sort of the second or third wave of the pandemic at the time. And perhaps if there had been tougher policies, Jeff would be alive today. So how do you choose? How do you decide? And, and, and a big part of my argument in the book is that people who are public health officials in this country can't just be doctors who are loved for their bedside manner they have to be they have to make very tough moral choices and they will inevitably be accused of you know homophobia or anti-semitism or bigotry against italians or whatever group has the has the disease first happens to be the unlucky victims that they, they will be accused of bigotry but they have to step in and fight the disease because you ultimately save lives, not just in that group, but in the groups that, that those, you know, the first group will spread the disease to. So it's kind of like generals. They can't yeah. spend all their time worrying about popularity contests. Once in a while, a general has to order one unit to fight a suicidal rearguard action to protect the retreat of the entire army. And if they don't do that, if they think about, boy, the men will hate me if I do that, you know, thousands die. It's, it's a very tough moral choice, but that's what public health has been about for centuries. And right now, it's gotten kind of nabby-pamby.
0: We will continue our conversation with Donald McNeil Jr. tomorrow when we talk about the Florida versus California COVID numbers, the origins of vaccines, and why the China and Russian vaccines just weren't that effective. And now the spiel. All the giants of the gridiron are shuffling off the stage. Belichick, Sabin, and of course the master of the Hail Mary, Chris Christie. Before the gladiatorial garden stater bid adieu to his quest to keep Donald Trump from getting his party's nomination at all costs, he was heard to deliver a couple of sentiments that cut off at the knees the only other people who actually could stop Donald Trump from getting his party's nomination. He begins with a little bit on Nikki Haley.
1: And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She
0: hasn't been the remarks were recorded on a hot mic, which you know I'm going to play. They don't call me Hot Mike Pesca for nothing or at all, in fact. But in case you were thinking, well, that's okay for Christie to say it. The whole point is that no Republican was listening to what Chris Christie was saying anyway. Well, there was one prominent Republican who heard it and then made sure everyone else did he had a hot mic where he was talking to somebody about uh, the weather and he happened to say that she doesn't have what it takes she'll be creamed in the in the election Smoked, creamed, it doesn't matter what preparation for herring you use, Nikki Haley seems to be floundering. On the one hand, there was a poll which says she's within seven points of Trump in New Hampshire. Hmm, that's the CNN-UNH poll. But a different poll has Haley down 20 and inspired this headline in the Boston Globe, the most read newspaper in New Hampshire. The Nikki Haley surge in New Hampshire may have peaked. Globe poll finds. Okay, but that poll does note that Haley was down 30 last they checked, and Chris Christie was showing up at 12% support in the poll, so if she picks up every Christie voter who hearkens to his piena voce as opposed to sotto voce utterances, the kind, you know, the kind of person who watches Shakespeare for the monologues, not the asides, well then those voters did get a feast for the ears last night. And they will have to contend with the Nikki Haley they saw, because Haley and Ron DeSantis in a CNN debate talked over each other, talked around the questions, and Nikki Haley also very, very much embraced the second screen phenomenon. When she was governor, she did bring Syrian refugees, and she got criticized for that. That is uh, not she true. She also, in DeSantis her comments, hold, on com. sec- hold on one second,
1: true. Cool.
0: It was DesantisLies.com, and it was everywhere. Three years in a row. Go to desantislies.com and you'll see. Three years in a row, he voted to raise life expectancy to 70 years old.
1: Three years. Nikki
0: Haley is against raising life expectancy? DeSantis voted to push life expectancy to only 70? It's currently like 77. But where can I get the truth on all of that? Go to desantislies.com. Okay, so that's the dot com. What about the dot how come? Ron's lying because Ron's losing. Remember when there were 10 people in the race? And the presence of Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurd was seen as complexifying the citizens' task of evaluating these candidates. Well, here's a quote from CJR, Columbia Journalism Review, their interview with a professor named Bill Gruskin. He said, If I were Suzanne Scott or Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the RNC, I'd put all the candidates' names into a hat and pull out two names at random and let them go at it for 10 or 15 minutes, starting with a general question or two from the moderator. Impose some rules, like no one could talk for more than 45 seconds at a time. Well, that's exactly what happened. It was maybe a minute at a time. And guess what? The debate still stank. Here's how the New York Times, let's go back in time, criticized one of the earlier debates, one of those debates marked by a raucous cacophony, quote, seven Republican presidential hopefuls bulldozed their way Wednesday through a fierce and unruly debate, shouting at each other over foreign policy, energy exploration, and technology, but leaving largely untouched the front runner who was not on the stage, Donald J. Trump but the exact same thing happened yesterday. Maybe it wasn't all shouting and a bit more substance got through, but Donald Trump was still untouched. DeSantisLies.com did not, because I went there, it did not for the record lead to a link to TrumpLiesMuchMuchMore.com or Trump has redefined the very nature of truth.org or they're prisoners, not hostages.edu or the guy said he'd be a dictator on day one.co.uk. I know the secret to a good debate. You ready? It's not format rules or numbers of participants or the moderators. It's that at least one person engaged in every exchange has some good points to make. And you can't mandate that through the rules. Sometimes you just get what you get from a race, from a party, or from a country. And that's it for today's show that just is produced by the quaint mallards comprised of Corey Wara, the assistant producer, and Joel Patterson, the senior producer, Michelle Pasca, is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. Come advertise with us. Go to advertisecast.com/slash/thegist. Umprujipurudupru. And thank you for listening. While your tax dollars are going to pay the pensions of Ukrainian bureaucrats, That's not true. you talk about That's putting Americans lie, last. Man. That is wrong. You've supported all that money going over there. So let's put You're our so own people desperate. first. We You're have just to put so Governor Governor Haley. Let's